a large body of research finds that active learning approaches result in larger learning gains than traditional lecture approaches. In this episode, we explore one faculty member's transition from using interactive lecture to collaborative learning and then to team-based learning. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Today, our guest is Dr. Kristen Croyle. Kristen is a psychologist and our new dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at SUNY Oswego. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. Our teas today are? Earl Grey. I am having Mama's work tea because Ada made it this morning and she calls it work tea, which means she pulls the tea bag tag out and puts it in the big cup. (laughs) Also, it's just my normal English afternoon, but that was a better story. And I'm drinking spring cherry green tea. We invited you here today to talk about collaborative and team-based learning in your classes. But before you do that, you've noted that you had a strong preparation in teaching before you got started. Can you talk a little bit about that? We've talked a little bit about that on the show before and how a lot of faculty aren't prepared. Can Mm -hmm. you talk about how your preparation Mm -hmm. maybe informed what you've done? Mm -hmm. My graduate program, I went to the doctoral program in clinical psychology at the University of Montana in beautiful Missoula. And that program takes the preparation of their grad students very seriously, but across several areas, not just in clinical work and research, but also knowing that some of them are going to end up in positions in which they will be teaching. So while I was there, the very first semester I was brought in, they had a structure for teaching their introductory psychology classes where graduate students were assigned our own classes, where we were the instructor in the classroom, but we had a supportive network around us. So the syllabus was already there. The textbook was already there. We collaborated in writing tests. We had a structure of TAs that supported us, and they would have recitation sections in which the TAs also received development. And we joined in that so we could see how more hands-on kind of things could be done with students in smaller groups. We even assigned our final grades together. And some of those pieces are pieces that are areas of skill that people don't often think about developing. So that first semester, all I had to do was think about working within the structure. How am I going to handle the day-to-day teaching and learning in the classroom? I didn't have to worry about course design because the course was already designed in front of me. And I also didn't have to, at the end, think, when you assign grades, is that rigid? Do you really have to follow the exact, you know, 90-80 that is in the syllabus? Or what if there are natural breaks around 88 or 89? Is it okay to flex that? What kind of power does an instructor have that is fair to students in evaluation? I got to do all of that in a collaborative setting with a very experienced faculty member as a guide. There was also a credit-bearing course for teaching psychology that we were encouraged to take, which I really enjoyed. And then I was given opportunities to function more independently. When they needed a stats teacher over the summer and they knew I was living there over the summer, I got to teach on an adjunct basis, but still with the support of faculty around me. So kind of putting students in the deep end, but with a high level of support around them, I felt very prepared when I was done with the graduate program to enter into an assistant professor position. And I still appreciate the preparation that they gave me. I think with a preparation like that, you're probably far more willing to experiment and do new things as a faculty member, too, and to maybe even break away from what faculty around you are doing. Did Mm -hmm. you find that to be the case, or 
Were there other faculty doing some of this collaborative work in the department that you were in? Yes and no. One of the experiences I had at my previous institution, which was the University of Texas Pan American, that then transitioned through merger to be the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, I was talking with a colleague in another department about the kinds of things we were doing in the classroom. And I still remember him saying, oh, I didn't know you could do that in the classroom and that that was like teaching. He had a very restricted idea of what teaching was and what would be acceptable to colleagues, which he had never had the opportunity to test with other people around him. And that was something that I arrived from day one, that you talk about your teaching, that you can do many different things in the classroom, and it's all teaching. As long as you are trying to work with students to create a learning environment and they are learning, then it counts as teaching. So I did come in with a much more flexible idea than certainly some of my colleagues who hadn't had an opportunity to ever have those discussions. And of course, some people are hired into departments in which those discussions don't ever happen. So they may persist with those misconceptions for many years. Or throughout their entire careers at times. <laughs> the scaffolding that was provided is really nice because we've talked to a few people who've been in teaching training programs or had some training in graduate programs, but usually it's not quite as structured as that. And that's a nice feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I came from a program like that, but it was like very front loaded. It wasn't that ongoing. So I felt a lot more prepared because I did have a lot of those experiences, but I didn't have that same kind of supportive network throughout, which mm -hmm. is incredibly valuable. So you want to take us through what some of your collaborative experiences have been in the classroom and the ways that you set up some of the team-based learning exercises, maybe starting with what are those? Sure. <laughs> so kind of the way that I journeyed through my teaching, particularly when I was an assistant professor, I felt comfortable in the classroom, but I didn't feel expert. I felt like I was still trying to figure out what was going on, which is a perfectly fine way to be <laughs> and a good state for learning to occur. So I felt like I was a talented lecturer. Like, I can engage students. I teach in psychology. I also think psychology is naturally very engaging, but part of that is because I really love the field. So I felt like I could engage students and that they would listen and that they would be interested. But I started to become dissatisfied that there was always a core of engaged students, and I had no idea what was happening with the other students in the class. And then sometimes I would be disappointed when we had tests or homework. <laughs> Everyone said they had no questions. Clearly, that was wrong. I was wondering, how do you engage the majority or all of the students in their learning so that they aren't coasting through class believing that they understand until they really don't? And I also felt like I was kind of fooling myself into thinking that students were with me when they were not with me. So I had an opportunity at that time to do some intensive cooperative learning training along the model of Johnson & Johnson collaborative learning. And that model from the University of Minnesota, it focuses on the importance of cooperation in the classroom. And that in cooperative settings, students learn more, develop a stronger sense of self-efficacy around their learning, that they together are able to achieve more than they would individually. And it also has impacts on retention, that if students are feeling like they are individually known and valued in the classroom by their peers, they're more likely to continue showing up to class and to develop relationships outside of the classroom that supports them along the way. So through that training, it was intensive. It was like eight hours a week one day set for several weeks. The very first day, I could see what a difference it was going to make in my classroom. So for example, I was using group assignments in class, and they had all the same disadvantages that group assignments in most classes have, because I had no idea how to structure the group work so that it would be successful. I was doing group work to save me grading time, honestly. That's why a lot of people go to group work. Yes, without understanding that all I had to do was some structural changes, and then it would actually be effective for learning as well, instead of just saving me grading time. 
in that cooperative learning training, I learned how to structure intensive group work that could be the length of an entire semester or it could be the length of a single class day. I learned how to structure less intensive moments of team time. So how do you do a think pair share that works versus how do you do a think pair share that doesn't work very well? So that within the course of that training, actually just within a few days, I suddenly had, instead of 10% of the students in the class engaged on a daily basis, I had 100% of the students engaged on a daily basis. So that was a huge breakthrough. And I continued that way for several years. What were some of the structural changes that you made that did lead to increased engagement? So the cooperative learning approach, Johnson & Johnson, is kind of theoretically heavy in the sense that they outline the pieces that are necessary for strong collaboration to occur. And then they turn it over to you as the instructor to say, how do I build those pieces in? So, for example, they emphasize positive interdependence as one of the essential components of cooperative learning, that when you create a group and a group activity for them to do, the activity has to be structured in such a way that each person is necessary to contribute. You can't structure it in such a way that you can have three people talking, one person is only needed. And there are specific recommendations on how do you structure it so that everyone is needed. At the same time, you have to build an individual accountability as another required component so that Even if each person is needed, people can still slack off. Say, yes, you all can't do as well without me because you need me, but I don't really care about what is happening here. There has to be a level of individual accountability that's also built in. Along with that, some of the skills that I thought were most important, they build in an emphasis on group processing and social skills so that if you have people consistently working together in class, they may not have developed the social skills to do that effectively, especially over time. You can work with someone for two minutes on a think-pair-share and really be bad at social skills. But if you have to work with them over an extended period of time on a project and things are going south in terms of group conflict, it's the instructor's responsibility to help them to develop the social skills to work together. For example, on the first day of class, when I first start having students talk to each other so that they know that's going to be a pattern in the class, I give them something quick to talk about. And I say, introduce yourself to the person next to you, spend two minutes talking about this, and then I'm going to ask you about what you talked about. And then I run around the class real quick, pair up people who aren't participating, introduce them to each other so that they understand this is a part of the class. But then I follow back. So what pieces are important there that I explicitly instruct them? You turn with your body, you actually make eye contact. And I will point out as people first start doing this, look at these two people, they are looking at each other. Because many times students won't do that. And it's very hard to have a cooperative interaction if you don't make eye contact. And I will say, who is the person you talk to? Tell me their name. So they understand that I was serious when I said, introduce yourself, tell me something about them, and that there's individual accountability through just random calling on that they need to participate in the cooperative portion. And then there's also the self-reinforcing aspect of it that five minutes later, when I say to talk about something else, they realize they already know somebody in class, they have a connection. The next day when I come in, they're not quiet, they're already talking to each other, they've created those connections. A nice thing about that, too, is for people who are uncomfortable talking about themselves in class, having one person tell you something about the other person, it's a little bit less pressure. It's a little less revelation to the whole group. There's some evidence that that type of thing is more effective in providing a more comfortable environment. Mm -hmm. Kristen, can you also talk a little bit about a specific example of a cooperative activity where all of the members are held accountable and all have a role, just to provide an example for people who have less experience? Mm -hmm. So cooperative learning can be divided into informal and formal cooperative learning. Informal cooperative learning tends to be much shorter activities that can be done kind of on the fly if you already have an idea in your mind of how you might want to do that. Formal cooperative learning tends to be more intensively structured. 
longer term activities. So that could be a single class session. If you're going to do an activity that takes an hour, that would be more formal. Or if you're going to do something that takes an entire semester. The pair and share that I just talked about is an example of informal cooperative learning. Something like a jigsaw classroom activity could be structured as a formal cooperative learning activity, and it already shares almost all of the components. There's individual accountability because each student is given a specific role. There's also positive interdependence because the success of everyone depends on each person doing their role. So there are ones that are already structured with a built-in component. The pieces that aren't built into something like a jigsaw classroom activity would be the group skills and group processing and the ways that you can build that in. You can, for example, ask groups to reflect on what went well. I typically emphasize that more than asking them to reflect on things that went poorly because asking them to reflect on what went well tends to maintain a positive atmosphere, but also helps them to cover both bases at the same time anyway. (laughs) Or realize that my list for what went well is not very long. (laughs) Right. So a common group processing thing I would have students do after their first more lengthy or more formal cooperative learning activity would be list three things that your team did well together and one thing that you could improve on. And another thing I might ask them to do is to provide positive feedback to each member of the group at the end of the activity. And the kind of feedback that they provide is usually pretty specific and helps to shape their behavior throughout the rest of the semester. So when they say things like, I like it when you disagreed and you said that this other thing would be a better way to go, that provides important feedback and helps to encourage better group processing going forward. But I will go around and give individual social skill feedback too, but it's usually things like, oh, I see you're sitting so far away from your group. I'm not sure they can hear you. Let's scoot your chair in so that they can hear you. Or I might ask, oh, do you know this person's name next to you? What's her name? And we'll make sure that people maintain the social and cooperative connections that enable to do that kind of good group work. Just as an aside, it's useful if you're asking about things that went well to keep the list fairly short. I'm reminded of a study that Dan Ariely talked about where they did a controlled experiment where in one case they asked people to reflect on three things they liked about the partner and in another case to list 10 things they liked about the partner. And then they surveyed them on the quality of the relationship. And those who were asked about three things generally rated the relationship with the partner fairly high. But when they were asked to come up with 10 things, they struggled with that and they rated that relationship lower. So keeping the list short right. is really good so you don't. Right. There's kind of analogous thought about keeping things like gratitude lists. If you list too much stuff, it can have a negative effect because you start to identify things that you really don't think are that important. And it makes you think the whole thing is less important. And if you want to get the opposite effect, ask people to list 10 things that were bad and then they'll struggle beyond the first few. You talked about having continuous relationships or persistent relationships with collaborative learning. Did you try to keep the group relationships consistent or the same groups throughout the term, or did you vary that? I varied it. There are some good data to suggest that in collaborative learning, they refer to them as base teams, that base teams have a persistent positive effect, particularly on things like student engagement and retention throughout the semester, throughout the year, that you have a team that is expecting you every day. But when I was doing cooperative learning, I didn't restructure my courses. I restructured the day. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a reason for base groups, and I felt strange imposing them on the students without a reason besides they would maybe be socially a good idea. I had to completely rebuild my courses from the ground up before I started using base teams. And that's when I transitioned to team-based learning. And in team-based learning, persistent teams are recommended as part of the process. Absolutely. Could you tell us a little bit about this transition to team-based learning? What prompted you to introduce that? 
and how it worked. So I was happy with how courses were going. People were interested and engaged. I had students telling me, I know every single person in this classroom. And when you're teaching a class of 30 or 40 or 50, that's unusual. I know everyone in here. I feel really supported. I felt like things were going well, but I was unsatisfied with what I was teaching. I wasn't clear in my own mind about what persistent learning outcomes I wanted for my students. I had not sat down and really thought through if I were to follow up with a student in a year or five years, what would I want them to recall from this class? What would I want them to be putting into use in their lives or in their careers? I had never thought that through. And I was fortunate enough to run into team-based learning at that time, right, as I was primed to start thinking about those questions. Team-based learning, originated by Larry Michelson, he was coming from the perspective of enrollment increases. He'd been assigning some pretty challenging work. He was a faculty member in business. And as his course enrollments increased, he started to wonder, how can you maintain the same kind of interesting, really challenging in-class, like casework, for example, with a large enrollment? So he developed team-based learning to address that piece, but it also requires you to completely rethink the design of the course and to start from the course outcomes. What do you want the persistent outcomes to be? And then structure the course forward in that way. So in team-based learning, after you make a decision about your course outcomes and what you really want students to be able to do, then you structure the course in a modular fashion, and each module has certain steps. So the beginning is student preparation. Then when they come into class, you test, say, okay. And it's called the readiness assurance process. So you want to know what students are ready to do after they've individually prepared and what they're not ready to do. So they prepare, they test, and then since it's a team focus, they also test as a team. After that, you have a good idea as an instructor, what are they ready to do? What are still the fuzzy areas? What do they really not get at all? What are their competencies as a team already, even if every individual student doesn't have it? And then you can do some corrective lecturing, basically, some mini lectures that fill in some of the gaps. And that's all part of the readiness process because you're getting them ready to do some interesting application work in class. And the rationale for that is, and actually what I had been doing prior to that, was giving interesting application material to work on at home individually while doing lecture and cooperative learning in class. But the interesting application material was actually the heart of the course and the much more challenging piece. So it was better to bring the hard piece where they needed support into the classroom and the piece they were ready to do, which was to do their own self-study back into their own lives. So you do this readiness assurance process to make sure they are ready for interesting application. And then the majority of the time for the module you spend on application. Doing that after I had already worked with cooperative learning was really helpful because all of that application work is done in a team setting. So when you already have some experience with how to build teams, how to maintain and develop their social skills, it's really, really, really helpful. That's a short version. One of my colleagues, Bill Goff, who was on one of our very early podcasts, noted that when he gave the group test, the performance always went up significantly so that they could see the benefits of the peer discussion that was part of that. And he was really impressed with it. And he noted that oftentimes if a student didn't show up for class one day, they'd get a hard time from their classmates from the group because they let the group down. And he said his attendance had never been better than when he was using a team-based learning approach. Absolutely. And a lot of people who do team-based learning use the same methodology for doing the team testing, which is honestly really cute. It's a scratch-off form, and the scratch-off form is used so that the team gets immediate feedback on each 
option. So on any particular item in a multiple choice test, if they want to select B, they scratch off B, it's not there, then they continue to scratch until they get the right answer. For one thing, they love it. But also they are getting immediate team feedback. If this person is not speaking up, if they say, oh, I think it's B, and then they stop advocating, and then it turns out to be B later, then the team immediately knows by the time they get to the next question, okay, we need to incorporate more feedback from all of our team members. Wait a minute, this person who's not speaking up actually has a lot to say. In the course of just a few multiple choice questions, it brings their team development forward leaps and bounds, and they kind of have fun with the scratch off, which is also a bonus. And it also gives them incentives to come prepared and to listen to other people in ways that they might not otherwise. Yeah, and their team will give them grief. If they say, oh, I don't know because I didn't read, their team members will be like, but we are depending on you. You need to read. We all read. And it also gives them a little bit, perhaps, of improvement in metacognition because they're getting that immediate feedback and it's being coupled with the reactions of the peers. So if someone was insistent on a wrong answer and they dominated that discussion, they might be a little more careful in the future and more willing to listen to the other people and exactly. reflect. And it doesn't have to wait till next week. It can happen right away, right on the next question. The team application activities are also structured in a particular way. In team-based learning, they talk about the four S's for the application activity. The first one is that you have to select a significant problem. So what they're working on is something that will be important to them, something that they will identify with or that they recognize is worth their time in thinking about and trying to think through. The second one is that they need to be working on the same problem. You can't say teams one and two are working on this, three and four are working on this, five and six are working on this. Third one is that they structure in so that they make a specific choice as the outcome because it's easier to solicit team feedback if everyone is making a specific choice rather than having kind of an open-ended narrative response. And it helps to stimulate whole group discussion as you're moving. Now, it can sound like it's limiting to say that you have to make a specific choice, but you can do it in a very broad way. And the fourth one is simultaneous reporting. So all the teams are asked to report at the same time on what the choice was that they made so that they can't piggyback off another team who's putting an effort. So as an example, one of the courses that I taught in the psychology major in Texas was the test and measurements course in psychology. And test and measurements starts with a stats review. They've all had statistics. It usually comes prior to test and measurements. But it's the first time that they have an opportunity to work with statistics in kind of a decision-making way. So you start with a stats review. So one of the activities that I would do, I gave them two hypothetical first grade teachers with how many questions 10 of their students got right on a spelling test. And the two distributions had the same mean, but one was fairly normal and one was highly skewed. So they had to do their quick statistics review, do the mean, median mode and standard deviation, describe the shape of the distribution. But the question I was asking them was, if you were the principal, which teacher would you offer an after-school tutoring program to for extra pay? And which teacher would you potentially nominate for a teaching award? They found that question to be a really interesting question. (laughs) For one thing, students think a lot about what good teaching is and what constitutes a good teacher. So they already come in with very strong opinions And they also understand the complexity of, you know, if everybody's passing, but people aren't excelling, is that good teaching? Whereas if most people are failing, but a few people are getting an A, is that good teaching? And how the data contributes to good decision-making, but can also be kind of manipulated to contribute to decision-making in not such a good way. So instead of just saying, let's review the stats, here they are, it was a question with a specific choice that they simultaneously reported on 
and then we could discuss together. And of course, their answers are different. There's different rationales in both ways. So then we could discuss together what their rationale was. If they want to debate, they can debate a little. It generates a lot of student enthusiasm, and everybody's doing it instead of just 10% of the class. And once they've committed to an answer, they have a stake in it, and they really want to know. That's something we've seen in a lot of things we've talked about in the past, too. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. When you were doing the team-based learning, were you sticking specifically to problems that were on a class-by-class basis still, like you were discussing in a cooperative setting, or were you doing some longer-term activities that went across multiple class periods? I had the, what I consider, gift to often be teaching in a three-hour time slot, which is my very favorite time slot. So I would have activities that would extend two or three hours, but typically not between classes. I found that to be more of a sweet spot, at least for me. At my previous institution, we had a very high commuter population, and I promised in both models that I would never ask them to do something out of class with their teams. That was one of my rules, that it was just simply too burdensome for students who have multiple outside-of-school commitments, family and work, who are living potentially 150 miles apart, which was not unheard of. I promised them no out-of-class stuff. I structured that intentionally so that the individual preparation that they were doing, they could do anywhere on their own time schedule, but they were expected to be there and their team expected them to be there to be able to engage in class. And it was also one of the ways that you talk people into it when they say, I've worked with other groups who are all slackers and we would always set times and they wouldn't show up. I said, that's not going to happen here. We already have a time we're all going to show up together. And the philosophy that's very similar to the flipped classroom approach where you let students do the easy stuff outside and then give them assistance with or have them work in a framework where they're getting more assistance with the more challenging issues. Absolutely. I think TBL is definitely a flipped classroom approach. I think the other thing that helps too with that model of making sure you're not working outside of class really helps students with really different backgrounds start working together because you might have students who are more traditional, who are on campus. And so for them to meet outside of class is often not such a big deal. Mm -hmm. But then if you have students who are working or have families and there's a disconnect in the class even between those two populations, it helps make that more obvious and work a little bit better. Right. Absolutely. And I didn't want to set up anything where people were made to feel like unvalued team members because they couldn't do what was asked of them because of other commitments. Since that was in my control, I wanted to make sure that people felt welcome. I've tried to even do that with long-term projects in the field that I we tend to do things that go across class periods, but there's always the, are we going to do this outside of class? Are we going to do this inside of class? And I try to have them do anything that needs to be collaborative and decision-making in class and then things that can be done on their own, even if that means doing some creative work or whatever outside of class. But those are independent things that can be done for the same reasons. Mm-hmm. And I find that students will try to manipulate that system. So that they're going to, well, we'll just do it outside of class because we don't want her to know whether or not we're on top of something or whatever. Uh-huh. But I'd call them out on it because it's really devaluing some of that exact thing. Mm-hmm. People have other commitments and things. Mm-hmm. You mentioned you started to use a backwards design approach mm-hmm. where you started with the things you want them to remember five years later. Mm-hmm. Did you have to cut back on the breadth of the coverage in the class to some extent by yes. doing that? Yes, I did. When I was going with the straight up cooperative learning approach, I did not have to cut back on content at all. Without the full redesign, I found I could cover the same amount of material in straight lecture versus in a cooperative setting, but it was all coverage. It was just a different kind of coverage. When I approached it from a backward design perspective and I really was able to focus on the objectives that I thought were important, I did have to reduce the amount of things that we were covering. I have no regrets about that, of course, because I completely recognize that covering material is just covering it. 
what are students going to do with something I covered in class? They didn't cover it. I was the one who was learning it and talking about it. So I'm much happier with an approach in which I am consistently hitting on the objectives that I really want them to recall and that they are working hard to apply those throughout the semester. If they're not going to remember it past the final exam, covering more material isn't terribly useful. Nope. We talked about that in a previous podcast with David Volker, who was talking about the uncoverage approach in history, which is the same logic. Exactly. And I actually now consider that to be a complete waste of time. So why am I spending class time on something that I actually don't really care if they remember? It's not the most important thing to me. And they really don't care if they remember. You have some compelling arguments for why (laughs) team-based learning and cooperative (laughs) learning are good options. If someone wanted to start moving in that direction, what would you suggest their first steps be? For team-based learning, there are a couple of great books that are very easy to approach. There are several great resources for team-based learning. Larry Michelson published a book in 2008, for example, that covers it from front to back, gives examples of applications in different disciplines. There's also a book published a few years later on team-based learning in the social sciences and humanities that also covers the basics, but has applications that are more specific to social sciences and humanities. Team-based learning has really caught on in medical education and in business education. So in the original book, there are more application examples that are in MD preparation or in business schools. So if you're looking for other examples, the second book might be a good choice as well. And that one is edited by Michael Sweet and Larry Michelson. And in fact, I read your article. Oh, did you? Your chapter in there as background. I'm glad someone read it. Now I have to read all the others, but I at least (laughs) did read that. It was very good. Good. So for faculty who are moving to this, what are some pitfalls that they might run into or what sort of problems might they encounter? Team-based learning as being a much more structured approach. Michelson does a really nice job of laying out the pieces that he thinks are critical, and I agree they are critical. So for example, he talks about explaining and testing the model with students on the first class day, and you cannot skip it. So the very first class day, I give students an example individual application test, like they would get for their readiness assurance. It includes basic psychology knowledge that may or may not be present in the culture. So they have some chance of getting some of them right and some not. And then I have them do it as a team. And the team scores, of course, are always dramatically higher than the individual scores. And the team testing process is so much better, just more pleasant and interesting and collaborative than they expect it to be, that simply going through that, it allays many of their fears about what a team is going to be like to work with. Plus, when they see that the team has tripled their individual score, they're like, hey, maybe I could depend on other people to help me learn, and maybe this will pay off for me. So going through an explanation of what the rationale is, having them experience it a little, is really, really critical in helping them stay open-minded while they experience it. And then regularly throughout the semester, I will keep reinforcing those messages. I'll say, look at this amazing thing you guys did. You used all the intellectual resources around you and you analyzed this difficult problem and came up with some great solutions. I'll remind them how much they're learning and what kinds of challenging tasks they're able to do as a team when they have the preparation to do it, which helps as they're starting to think, well, wouldn't it just be easier if I could do this by myself? It helps them to kind of remember, well, yes, but you wouldn't be doing this. You would be doing something not as challenging, not as integrative. And probably not learning quite as much either. Yes. He also emphasizes an aspect that is also emphasized in cooperative learning of helping the teams develop and giving them feedback, helping them give each other feedback. That's also really critical, especially very early in the semester as they're starting to develop group norms and bond together to make sure that you don't short the time in class. 
for them to have some group processing time and to build their team skills. So for example, when I taught last spring, I had a student who came to me after I think it was the second week. So it was very early in the semester. And she said, I really need to reassign teams. My team hates me. They won't make eye contact with me. She was really upset. And I'm reluctant to reassign people teams because often what they're experiencing, they take with them. It's not always a function of that team process. So we talked some and I tried to get a handle on what she was experiencing. I knew where she sat. I had an idea of the team composition and I asked her to try one more day, just one more day. And then we would talk about reassigning her teams. And that day I was sure to build in plenty of time for group processing where they talked about what they were doing well as a team and something to improve. Their team turned around immediately. She was a relatively assertive person, which I already knew. I knew that she could handle this if she went back to the team. She was able to talk with her team about not feeling heard. They immediately turned around in the way that they were working with her. And by the very next class day, they were relatively high-functioning team. They did well all semester. They brought donuts for each other. I mean, it was a really nice, supportive group. What they needed was the time in class to do some processing. And if I, as the instructor, had been moving too fast and not giving them time to do that and not giving them a prompt to do that, it would have been a really negative experience for her. So also building in time for the team to develop and prompts for them to do that. So you mentioned liking to have a three-hour teaching slot. That's my favorite. It's not required. So in that amount of time, how much time would you designate towards this group processing, for example, to give people an idea of what that proportion or the amount of time to dedicate so that you don't shortcut it and you don't rush through it? If I were to do an activity that might take an hour, I might spend 10 minutes for group process. It doesn't have to be very long or even five. And you don't have to do it every time. You could do 10 minutes after the first one or two more intensive activities, then not do it for another few times, then another five minutes, just every so often to help them resolve their underlying dissatisfactions and to recognize that what they're doing is not just application activity, it's also group interaction. So you take time to do both. Another really important required component that I didn't mention is peer evaluation. I always incorporate peer evaluation as part of the grade. How did you form the teams in these classes? They're heterogeneous first, with a very open process so students can see it happening and know there are no shenanigans, that this is all very open, talking about the rationale that people of different backgrounds bring different strengths. So you want a group that has people of different backgrounds so you can have a larger kind of learning base between you. So usually I'll pick a few characteristics that might be important in that kind of background. And I will line them up around the room based on those characteristics. And if it's 200 people, it's a really long line. And then we count off. So when I teach introductory psychology, students who have had a high school psychology class usually are starting a big leg up on the other students. So I'll include that as a characteristic. Sometimes I'll include the distance that people are coming from because then they have different experiences. Depending on what class, I might also include if they're student athletes. Just because if you put too many together in a team, then they're all gone on the same day. They have interesting backgrounds, but they also have patterns of attendance and absence that need to be adjusted around and will count off all the way around so people can see how the teams are made. But heterogeneous teams are really, really critical. Having students with pre-existing relationships will throw off the team process in a way that automatically excludes the people that don't have pre-existing relationships. Plus, they tend to be lower performing teams, and I don't want to set that up on purpose. One of my colleagues once did this in a class of, I think it was about 350 students. 
but he just sorted them alphabetically. So he had them organize himself that way. And it was a fairly long process, but mm -hmm. it was kind of amusing for those of us wandering by and just seeing this, this huge they, line. <laughs> he yeah. didn't do it that way in the future. He used other criteria. I've had colleagues that I've talked with that think that this is a long process. It's not. You can sort 200 people in 10 minutes and then you're done for the whole semester. Doing it alphabetically can Takes be more a lot challenging longer. because they were self-forming that. Yeah. It didn't converge rapidly. The other thing I never do is I don't put the students who didn't come the first day into a team because there are characteristics about why they didn't come the first day. If you put them all together in one team, they share some of those characteristics. It tends not to be a very high-performing team, so I make sure they're sorted out among the other teams. But that was one of the things that I learned in cooperative learning, that before I did cooperative learning training and I was assigning group work, I would assign people based on if you didn't come the day we did the assignments, you were in another group. And that group typically did not do very well. And as an instructor, it's my responsibility to create a learning environment in which students can excel. It's on them whether they do their part. But if I'm setting up a team in ignorance with predictable characteristics so that they're going to have a failure experience, that's on me to correct. And it's not on them. So afterwards, I felt guilty when I had come to a new realization. But yeah, it's my responsibility to set up an environment in which those students can be successful in their teams. In your chapter in that book, you mentioned that when you switched over, it did affect your course evaluations a little bit. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Just a little bit. But yes, it did. So when I was doing straight lecture, I was shooting for engaged lecture. And in psychology, you can build in little experiences, especially in introductory psychology where the topics are changing frequently. You can always build things in that are kind of interesting. You can do a little optical illusion here and a little bit of memory trick there. And there's these ways to build it in, but it is still basically straight lecture. And I got high evaluations for that. I was careful about trying to build those in every day, you know, every few minutes. And when I went to cooperative learning, where it was essentially the same approach, but in a much more engaged and cooperative fashion, those evaluations stayed very high. Students knew each other. They were happy in class. When I went to team-based learning and I was actually asking every student to participate all the time and be prepared in class in a way that their contributions were much more obvious than mine. My evaluations did drop just a little bit. Not a lot, but a little. And I am grateful that I was teaching in a context where I knew that my department wouldn't care. They were more interested that I was doing good teaching, and they understood the many factors that influence student evaluations. But I also recognize that it's incumbent on me to help students understand how they are learning, what kinds of things encourage learning and retention. And then you kind of let the student evaluations fall where they may. When I read that, it reminded me of that study that came out a few weeks ago from Harvard in the physics program, where they found that students in active learning classes did demonstrably better on tests, but they perceived their learning as being lower. So there was a pretty strong inverse relationship between their perception of learning and actual learning. That seems to be fairly common. There have been a number of other studies where what students think to be most effective is often not what most enhances their learning. Right. Do you have any other advice for our listeners who might think about using either collaborative or team-based learning in their classes? The one thing I would say is that teaching a cooperative learning or team-based learning structure class is a lot more fun. You have to be willing to give up control because when you're lecturing, you have absolute control, meaning even that students can't ask you weird things because you haven't opened the door for that to happen. But when you structure the learning experience and then you give up the control to the students, it is an exciting environment to be in. I wasn't as tired when I was coming out of class. I was energized. 
You could feel the difference in the room just walking into class. They were excited and talking with each other. When I would circulate around before class started, they're talking about the class instead of talking about other stuff. It completely changes the environment in the classroom in a way that I think really matches what I expect out of a university education for students. It creates an environment of intellectual enthusiasm around the topic that you're teaching. So we always wrap up by asking, what's next? That's a great question. So right now I'm 100% administrative. And since I'm in a new position, in a new institution, I'm going to spend some time figuring out all the newness pieces. But I'd like to go back to the classroom, at least for a course here and there when I can. There's nothing different about students than there is about people. So I also think often about how what we do in the classroom, what we understand works and what we understand doesn't work, how that applies in administrative settings as well. We know, for example, that people tend to try and find the shortest path. So if they're trying to learn something, they want to put in the least effort to learn it. If you ask a faculty member to do a task for the department, they are obviously going to choose the easiest path to do that, not necessarily the best path. So how do I take the experiences of learning and teaching that in some ways are better understood to an environment of administration that in some ways is not as well understood? What kinds of lessons can I apply there as well? Well, thank you so much. It's been a really interesting conversation. I'm sure it gives a lot of people things to think about as they move forward in this semester and future semesters. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.